The story of the Magi probably began about 600 years earlier. Because in the region where they came to offer worship to the king of the Jews, there had been a mass genocide and exodus. In fact, the Babylonians had come into the region and had taken the entire area captive and had led away everybody who was of use to them and killed the rest. One young man who was led away to the east about a thousand miles and to Babylon was Daniel. You know of him because of the book that was written that bears his name in the Old Testament. And Daniel was the original wise man. And historians believe that in the ministry that he had there in the city of Babylon, where you recall he served multiple kings, some of whom actually came to a knowledge of the truth and became worshipers of Yahweh, he was able to explain to the other wise man uh, that had assembled around the king these mysteries about the coming of the Messiah one day. And it's believed that he actually trained many of the wise men who handed down their skills in astronomy all the way down to the time where these magi, these wise men, from the east, from Persia or ancient Babylon, saw the star and were able to connect the dots and understand that it was time for them now to make their way to wherever this Messiah was to be born. Now, in terms of the actual timing of it, scholars disagree and wrestle with it based on the two narratives that we have, one being in Matthew and one being in Luke. In Luke chapter 2, verse 39, it says that once Mary and Joseph had gone up to the temple to offer the sacrifices 40 days after Jesus' birth, that they immediately left and went back to Nazareth. In the account in Matthew, it, it certainly would appear as if almost immediately after they did that, the Magi appeared. You say, well, how do I put those two together? Well, I think there are several ways we could come up with theories as to how exactly this was to be explained to us. One is that Luke, as you know, was writing his as a historical record, as an orderly account, he says, much more concerned about the chronology of events. Uh, whereas Matthew, writing to Jewish audiences, was looking to show the fulfillment of prophecy in everything that Jesus did. Another explanation is that, as we know from both accounts, that Jesus, along with his parents, made the trek back to Jerusalem every single year. So it's quite possible that they were there maybe on the first or second year of Jesus' life, and that would account for why the children two years and younger were murdered. Either way, what we do know for certain is that these magi appeared, and they weren't expected, and they didn't come just to visit with the baby or see the baby, but they came to worship the baby, and they came to help identify the baby as the Son of God, who he is. Now, as you know, when they came, they came bearing treasures. I like that translation, treasures. And, and if we can assume that Jesus was perhaps a little older than the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, perhaps maybe he had come back in a subsequent year. He certainly wasn't in the stable anymore. The text says they were in a house. But when they came, they would have offered these gifts as an act of worship to the child. Noticeably absent from the narrative is any sign of appreciation from Mary and Joseph, is any thanks. Why is that? Because when somebody is worthy of worship, 
They don't respond with thanking you for the worship. When you bring worship to God, God doesn't turn around and say, thank you for worshiping me. Why? Because it's entirely appropriate to worship. You acknowledge the fact that he is God and you are not. And these wise men came all the way from Babylon with one purpose, and that is to worship. And that is to pour out their praise to this child. That is to say to him, we come bearing gifts, and not because you need it, we come bearing gifts because it's appropriate for who you are. Now, as you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh had a meaning. Now, many scholars have helped to explain this to us over the years. It's worked its way into popular songs and many sermons and teachings. But if we can take really a biblical, theological approach to this, I think it would be helpful. If you've been reading along in the Advent book that we gave you earlier in the month, you will, I hope, be appreciating how the author does that, how he takes these common scenes that we are reminded of every year, and I believe anyway, does a masterful job of rescuing them from nostalgia, rescuing them from mere tradition, rescuing them from the annual sort of here we are again with the same story, and showing how it fits into the grand scheme of redemptive history. And if there's one particular tie-in that we could look at this morning, which will fit with our text in Romans, it is this notion of gifts. And the Magi came and they gave gold. And gold, as you may have already learned, was a symbol of kingly rule. This was a gift worthy of the kings. What do you bring a king? You bring a king this purest and most valuable of objects, something of gold. And then frankincense, common word to describe the sort of um, offering that was given at the temple when you would burn something in order to allow the smoke to rise up, as it were, to heaven as a symbol of your prayers of worship in the frankincense. And then finally in the myrrh, and myrrh would have been a rather unusual gift to give to a baby, especially because it was used in the process of wrapping up bodies and preparing them for burial in order to mask the odor of decomposition. And yet, as we all know, that did symbolize the fact that one day our Lord would be wrapped in not swaddling clothes, but death clothes. And he wouldn't bear in his body the scent of his mother holding him close, but would bear wrapped around his body the scent of ointments and spices that were intended to mask the stench of decay and reveal that even the people who wrapped him didn't fully understand the prophecies that no corruption would ever meet that body, but that it would be raised up again three days later in glory to show that everything was accomplished, that every single goal was achieved, that sin, death, and hell could no longer have any grip on us, because everything had been accomplished literally from cradle to grave in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now it also shows that he was both the prophet, priest, and king. The king in the sense of this golden celebration given to him at his royal ascension. He was also a priest, not only the one that would offer these sacrifices of praise and offer himself up as a sacrifice, but the one who would also receive them as worthy of receiving it. And then a prophet 
a prophet whom he modeled after the other prophets who came and gave their prophecies and then received from the people not repentance and belief, but rejection and murder. And he died at the hands of those who should have believed and repented, but instead, as so many of the prophets before, received only the judgment of the people. You see, in everything, he fulfilled it. He is the very purpose of what we read about and celebrate here during Christmas. But he also gives us a beautiful example of the joy of giving. And not only does he receive gifts, but here's something amazing. He also gives them. This is something that never happened when you came to visit a king. You didn't go into the king's presence and accept to receive presents. You didn't go and visit the king with what you offer to him and then rest those there and wait for him to then give you something in return. Didn't work that way. Even though the king had all the wealth, even though the king had all the power, even though the king had all the influence, even though he was the most important one, you, the servant, were the one who came and gave the gifts. It was just a gift to be in his presence. But our Lord says, not only am I willing to receive your praise, but in turn, I'm going to actually give you gifts. And we have an example of that in the text of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning in Romans chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, open them, and we're going to continue in this beautiful section of the application of everything that Paul has been teaching us in this amazing letter to the Roman believers. And if you will follow along, I will read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, and this will form the basis for our exposition this morning. This is God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. There are three things that we mentioned last week we're going to bring to the Lord in terms of worship. Uh, The first one that we talked about was the worship itself. Uh, We bring to him this sacrifice of praise, and we saw that in verse 1. Just by way of reminder, Paul says that I appeal to you, meaning I I come alongside, close to you. Uh, This isn't just an 
exhortation from afar. He says, I know you and I'm coming alongside you as a fellow brother in Christ. You are my brothers and I'm going to appeal to you by God's natural, infinite mercy. Because he is a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious and compassionate God. He is a God who receives you and then also gives you the ability to glorify him in what you do. He is a God who wants to be with you. And therefore, you would want to present yourself to him, not just in spirit, but also with your body, with the actual flesh that you indwell, uh, with this physical part of you. It's not enough just to, to worship him in spirit, not just in your mind, but also in what you do. Now remember, this is not works righteousness. This isn't a way to earn his favor, to make him love you more. You're not doing chores for God. Can I just sort of release you from that expectation? I think there are some, and this is common in evangelicalism today, that seem to think that when they come to faith in Christ, that in return they're given sort of a to-do list. These are your chores. And as long as you do your chores, you're going to keep God happy. Now listen, you might have grown up in a household where you had chores. Some of you did, some of you didn't. Those of you who did, you understand that that was the expectation. And if you didn't do your chores, there were consequences. And if we're not careful, we can sort of import that idea into our understanding of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And we can think that we've got all these chores we've got to do, and if we do those, He'll approve of us. And if we don't, He'll disapprove of us. Beloved, that's not worship. That's religion. And so here in this text, Paul wants to remind us that when we come to him, to God, we come with worship, not with religion. The worship here is a worship of the heart, but it's, but it's played out in the way that we use the bodies that he has given us for his glory. How do we do that? by assembling them together in his spiritual body, the church, and serving one another, as we'll see in a few moments. So there is the act of worship that we bring him. It is acceptable to God. It is our spiritual worship. And as again, we said, it's our divinely reasoned worship. It's us using our minds to understand what the scripture says and coming away convinced that, yes, this is what is appropriate. But not only do we bring worship, we, we also bring our will. And we sacrifice that. And this is a little harder. It's harder to sacrifice our will because we have to give up what we would normally wish to do. Look at verse 2. We're not conformed to the world. We're not allowing ourselves to be formed the way the world wants us to be formed in order to be successful by the world's standards. Do you ever feel that temptation? Do you ever feel tempted to, to conform your behavior, your thinking, your attitude, the way you spend your money, the way you look, what you do, what you drive, who you hang out with, in order to conform to what the world tells you you ought to be if you're going to be successful, in order to conform to what the world says you've got to do in order to be happy? Paul says, look, if that's your mindset, you're, you're going to miss out on the greatest blessings that come from the Lord and submitting all of that to him, all of what you think you need and deserve and want, and instead receive his will and do what he wants. How is that done? Well, take a look at the rest of the verse. He says it is done by having your mind renewed, having your mind uh, literally resurrected, you could say, 
And, and as a result, your, your entire person is, is transformed. It's a word we get metamorphosis from. You are, you are radically converted and changed and transformed into something that is now controlled by a mind that has been resurrected and understands truth and is able to process it. There's no struggle anymore. You're able to test and to discern and to know what is good and what is not. Now, this isn't always morally good. It's oftentimes what is useful and appropriate, what is functional. One of the things that um, changes over the years, I think, on Christmas morning is that as your kids get older, less and less of the gifts involve batteries. But when they're little, not only are the gifts open, but then they have to be charged with something and you've got to get batteries and you've got to put them in and then everything kind of works well if you put a battery in and it doesn't work you you say the battery is what bad it's a bad battery doesn't mean a morally bad battery that battery hasn't been out there messing around with other bad batteries and doing bad things it's just useless it's not good Paul says here you need to have your mind trained to know what is good what is useful what what works when you when you put it in What is actually biblical? And so he says here, you're able to do that. Your mind is transformed when you you submit your will to God and you allow him to be the one who tells you what is right and good and appropriate. Uh, You capture that and you desire to do it. And therefore, it is divinely good, perfectly good. It is acceptable to him and it is absolutely complete and perfect. Well, this leads to our third point. And we'll look at this this morning. Not only do you give him your worship and your will, but I want you to see this morning that you give him your works. You give him your works. Once again, these are not chores you do in order to please him. These are the works that you do because he's given you the gift. He's given you the ability. He's given you the desire to do these things. Now, please notice how Paul opens this up because this particular use of the, of the works is going to be for the body going to be according to your calling, and it's going to be with Christ as your example. So if you're a note taker, you can jot these down. These are going to be frame up our thoughts here this morning. So from verses 3 down through uh, the rest of this section, which will take us all the way down through verse 8, we're going to look at the works that we give to the Lord, and we're going to find out that they are for the body, that they are according to your calling, and that they are with Christ as your example. Now, why do we go here to look at gifts as opposed to some other section in Scripture? Well, first of all, because this is where we happen to be in Romans, so it's appropriate. We are working our way through this book, and we are in Romans 12. But whenever I'm talking about spiritual gifts with people, I I like to go to Romans 12, because another natural place might be 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, but as you probably know, there in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Paul is correcting the Corinthian church. I mean, the Corinthian church had gone completely off the rails with gifts. I mean, they had got it all wrong. And so he was talking about it really as a way to rein them in, as a way to help them think biblically and use them appropriately. It was very corrective. Whereas here in Rome, he just simply explains them and he encourages the people. And he says, I see it in the church and I want to tell you that it's a wonderful example of God's grace to this body. And so I just want you all to know that that you've been given a gift and you should use it for the benefit of this local body, for the glory of God, and really for the joy of knowing that you're being used for his glory. And so Paul begins by saying, though, 
It is only by the grace of God given to me that I can talk to you. It's a very humble way to begin. Paul says, I've been given these gifts, but I've also been given this grace and this mercy from God, and he has humbled me. I'm only bringing this up with you because he's humbled me. You know, there's a transition that goes on in a believer's life as they mature. And as they mature, they become more and more humble about the gifts that God's given them. New believers, immature believers, believers who are just learning about the the gifts of the Spirit that are given to them tend to use them with great zeal, uh, sometimes in a way that is not always helpful within the body. Sometimes they want to to use this new discernment, for example, that they have found, and they want to go around and demonstrate their discernment by showing everybody where they're wrong. Others think, well, I must have the gift of teaching, and therefore everybody that comes along my path is going to receive a lesson from me. But Paul says here, over time, it begins to settle out a little bit. Over time, you begin to use those gifts in a way that's truly beneficial to the body. And he had to learn that himself. And Paul says, because of the grace of God given to me, because he's been kind and patient with me, I am going to now instruct you. And I'm going to instruct you along the lines of, of how you ought to use these gifts. And his encouragement to the people here, it's so interesting. He says, the best way that you'll know that, that you've really understood the gifts that God's given you is if you don't think too highly of yourself. Literally, the word is hyper-opinionated. You have a, a, a hyper-high view of yourself, of, of your contribution, of your value, of your significance. And Paul says, the way you'll know you're mature in understanding gifts and how you use them is that you don't have that view of yourself. You, you don't look at yourself as being God's gift to the church. You don't view yourself as being the one who's always right. You don't even view yourself as the one who is always necessary to speak into every situation just because you can. You, you learn to withhold your opinion sometimes. You, you learn to wait until you're asked. And then Paul says, I don't want you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but, strong contrast, the opposite here, but to think with sober judgment with sober judgment. It's it's the same word that was used to talk about the sanity that was restored to the demon-possessed man who was running around naked in the tombs and cutting himself. So now, now, I don't mean to overplay this a little bit, but a person who doesn't understand how to humbly use the gifts that God has given them is at least on one level compared to some naked, insane man running around the tombs cutting himself. I mean, the opposite of the sort of sober judgment that Paul is saying we should exercise is this radical concept of how great you are. Living completely for yourself. Living completely for the joy of watching other people marvel at your gifting. Now Paul does get corrective. He says, listen, if that's the way that you use gifts within the body, it's never going to accomplish the purposes that God intends. However, If you can look at yourself from the standpoint of one who has been given these gifts and you can be humble and you can be sane in the way that you administer them, then you will be useful. In fact, you have to understand that each one has been given it, look at verse 3, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. A measure of faith. It's the piece that you've been assigned, literally the portion. It's like maybe yesterday you got together as a family for dinner and 
somebody was assigned the task of carving whatever animal gave their life for your celebration. For us, it was some little lamb. And um, there it was on the cutting board. And I had my tools, my instruments in my hand. And I got to go about my fatherly task and duty of carving up the roast beast for that celebration. And as I did, I sliced it accordingly. Meaning, I knew how many people were at the table, I knew roughly how much each person needed, and I was able, because of my many years of experience and my dexterity with sharp objects, to create the perfect amount of cut-up, roasted leg of lamb. And it was delicious. I do my part, my wife did her part, and it was great. She did all the work, I do the cutting, and together we celebrate what we've created. Paul says, look, when, when, when you have gifts given to the church, it, the Lord has, has parceled those out. He has, he has distributed them. They, they have been divided, literally. And he has appropriately given each of you what you need. But more than just what you need, it's what you need in order to meet what we need. You see, within the context of using it within the body that God has made you a part of, the gifts that you are given are gifts that are to be used there's no point in having a gift and then keeping it to yourself. Having a gift and not actually using it. So he says, look, when you have been given this particular measure of faith that has been assigned to you, this, this measure of knowledge, measure of wisdom, measure of gifting, understand it comes from God. It's been, it's been carved up specifically for you, handed to you, because he knows that you need to use it within the body that he has placed you. It is first and foremost for the body. And so he continues, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You see, within this community you have a responsibility. And so the gifts are given to you so that you can use them in order to benefit the body that Christ has put you into, the, the church body. So he says you're members. The word, the word members there is a word for organs or limbs. You're all a limb. You're all an organ. You're all this important part of this body. Do you realize that we cannot function at our best without you? That if you're part of this local church, by the way, if you're visiting, you're welcome to be here. We're, we're glad you're here. But you're not one of our organs. You're, you're not one of our members. Not just church members, I mean, I mean members is in the parts, uh, the, the parts of the, the body that God has put together. I love the fact that people can visit our church and see us functioning well together. I pray that people would visit our church who are not even yet members of the body of Christ and not even children of God yet in the sense of having put their faith in Christ. They can hear the gospel, they can repent, they can believe, they can be absorbed into this body. That would be a goal of any faithful pastor. But I understand that at least one of my responsibilities is to remind those of you who have covenanted together in this local church, as part of Tri-City Bible Church, you have said, I am a part of that local assembly. I, I am going to submit to that group. I'm going to come under the leadership of those elders. I'm going to serve that body, and I'm going to use my gifts. Are you prepared to use your gifts? Are you prepared to... Get off the sidelines. 
and say, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done around here. In fact, I'm I'm reminded of that, especially on mornings like this, when so many people are away, and I arrive and I see how much needs to be done and how much I forget gets done all the time without my knowing it. It only takes one or two key people to be missing to realize how much needs to be done. Now, this is not a sermon where I guilt you into doing more good deeds and works and tell you if you're not, you know, volunteering and serving in every ministry that, that you're not being obedient to Christ. What I'm telling you is that you have been given a gift And I'm going to encourage you to give deep and sincere thought to how you're using it within the body. Because I believe that 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 says that every believer has a gift, every one of you. And it's either a speaking gift or a serving gift. That's the way he describes them. Either a speaking gift or a serving gift. And so my question to you this morning is, do you know what your gift is? I'm not going to ask you to fill out a survey I'm going to ask you to pray that God would reveal it to you. And he usually reveals it to people in at least one way consistently, and that is what are the things that you can do within the body of Christ that bring you joy and and give you the sense that the Lord is genuinely blessing and, and energizing that effort. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that you are here because you're needed As in, if you're not doing what the Lord's called you to do, there's actually less health and vibrancy in this body than if you were doing it. We have to be careful not to puff people up with comments like that. This doesn't make much of you. It makes much of God who gave you the gift and a place to use it. In fact, I would argue that if it makes much of you or if you feel like it makes much of you, it's actually a sign of pride. Instead, if we can deflect that to the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, for giving the gifts that you've given. May I use them in this body for your glory and for its building up. Then it will automatically take our eyes off of ourselves and onto what he is doing. So what's your gift? And are you using it? Why is it important? Because you're a member of the body. You're a part And and if you have a limb and it's not working, it's obvious. If you have an organ and it's failing, it's obvious. You know you're not well. And my prayer is moving into this next year, we're going to find out how to be even more spiritually healthy as a church than we are right now. And that'll come by each of us using our gifts. So it is done for the body, but it is also done according to your calling. Look at the next section here in verses 6 through 8. There are various gifts, and they differ according to the gifts that God has given us, but we're all supposed to use them. He says they are different. There's a variety of them. He didn't just give one. Paul uses the example of the body kind of to an absurd level when he says to the Corinthians, it's not like everybody's an eye or everyone's an ear. He made the body out of a lot of different parts, some visible, some invisible. And and if we break these seven gifts down into the speaking gifts and the serving gifts, that might help us to explain them. So I'm going to take them a little bit out of order, but let's put the speaking gifts together first. He says there are some who have the gift of prophecy, some who have the gift of teaching, and some who have the gift of exhortation. Prophecy, teaching, and exhortation, those three. What is prophecy? Prophecy is not being able to tell the future, lest there be any confusion about that. There are no Christian fortune tellers. There are no actual real fortune tellers. Nobody knows the future. God didn't give that to somebody as a gift. 
The prophecy, in fact, that we read about in Scripture is very clearly the prophecy that is here in accordance with your faith, the degree of spiritual maturity that you have. How do you become spiritually mature? You become spiritually mature by knowing God's word and his will. And the prophecy here is the proclaiming of the truth. You grow in your knowledge of the word and your ability to proclaim it. I think the closest example we have to prophecy today would be the preaching of God's word. It would be the regular preaching of that truth. That in that there is a certain degree of depth of biblical knowledge that is necessary to to tie together the truths of scripture into a whole and to be able to communicate that story of redemptive history with clarity. It was said to me one time that anyone can be unclear. They just have to make sure they don't know what they're talking about. And sometimes you get across preachers who seem to pride themselves on being so obscure, uh, being so erudite, so, so above everybody else that they want people to think that they're just so brilliant that the common people like us could just never get up to their level. I don't think that's what real proclamation of truth should be like. That's not what real prophecy or preaching is like. Real preaching should be so simple that everybody understands it. Just walk through the text of Scripture and explain it to the people so that they realize what it means, how it applies to them, and how they can obey it for God's glory. The next step is teaching. Teaching now was a word that we get didactic from. It was actually a word that you would use to describe taking truth and bringing it down into something applicable, taking a big doctrine and making it understandable and applicable. Now, every preacher and teacher do a little bit of both. Every preacher ought to be a good teacher. Every teacher may or may not be a good preacher. The idea of preaching here, is to, or of teaching here, is to take something that is still a little bit obscure and to make it even more clear, specifically in the way that a person applies it in their life. Uh, this would be the person that was able to sit down with somebody else and, and walk somebody through the scriptures and explain in detail how that person could understand the word better and, and live in accordance with God's will. I think about what um, even happened to, to Apollos. Remember, he was taken aside by a couple and he was instructed. And even though he was a great preacher, he still needed some extra teaching and instruction. And so he was taken aside and he was taught. Even the Apostle Paul himself, after his conversion, when he was taken to the house of Cornelius, was taught for many years after that before being released into the known world to become the preacher and evangelist that he became. There is that season of learning But there's also a third way in which God may have gifted you, and that is exhortation. And and this is really the finest point. If you go from the preaching role or the prophecy role down to the teaching role, you go a step further and it's down to the exhortation role. The, The exhortation is the person who can come alongside you really close and challenge you and convict you with God's word. This is the person who has like the gift of rebuke. You ever met these people? I mean, they they have a gift. They can come alongside an erring brother or sister and they can rebuke them in kindness in the Lord and somehow the person is thankful for it. 
And, and I've watched this happen. I confess, I don't think God's given me that gift, uh, you know, because it's, it's so surgical. It's so perfect. It's so brilliant the way they do it. They, they bring the person along with such grace and love and kindness, and the person is exposed to the truth of their error, and they're thankful for being confronted. Preachers tend to be kind of like blunt force instruments. The exhorter can come alongside from very close and with genuine compassion and friendship, guide. And so here, the, the, the exhortation is, is done in such a way that a person realizes that God is using this individual in my life to exhort me in a way that will cause me to walk more faithfully in his will and in his ways. So those are the speaking gifts. What about the serving gifts? We can break them down this way. We've got those who are actually involved in serving, it says, very simply. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Giving, leading, and showing mercy. So serving, giving, leading, and showing mercy. You might say to me this morning, well, look, pastor, I am not a speaker like at all. I don't want to speak to the whole church. I don't want to teach people in small groups. I don't want to exhort people one-on-one. I mean, it's just not my thing. God hasn't given me that, that gift. Well, then you would be somebody who's gifted with one of the serving gifts. And those serving gifts are described here. There's sort of four big categories. So the first one is just the word serving. It's the word we get deacon from. And so Paul says, those of you who have the gift of serving, demonstrate it by doing that. What do, what do people who serve do? Might seem like a strange question, but, but what do people who serve do? It, it's a noun here. So he is saying, those of you who serve, do it in the service. What do we call this gathering sometimes? We call it the Sunday morning what? Service. It's the ser- serving is happening here. Do it in the service of the body. Gather together for the purpose of saying, how can I, in my serving, minister to this body? What needs to be done and how can I do it? The very nature of a deacon is that they are willing to take action. They're not going to sit on the sidelines and watch some problem go unsolved or watch a need go unmet. And so the way I describe this is you serve by taking action. Isn't it wonderful that there are people who just take action? They don't wait for someone to tell them to do something. Uh, They don't ask permission. They just do what needs to be done. Those are wonderful people to have in a church. And if God has gifted you in this way, I am thankful for you. Because you are one of those people That when you see a need, you meet it. Uh, If you see a way to serve our body more effectively, you engage with it. Uh, You're not willing to sit on the sidelines and notice something that needs to be done and just complain about the fact that it's not getting done. You step in and you do it. May I recommend today that you might have the gift of service. And so continue to excel still more in that serving. The next one is giving. I love this. Giving. Now, I know what you're immediately thinking. You're thinking, okay, great. Here's the part in the sermon where we're all supposed to be told to give more money, right? I'm not going to tell you to give more money. In fact, I want to commend you. You are a generous church. You are an incredibly generous church. In in fact, uh, we haven't taken a formal offering here since we moved outside almost two years ago. And, And the Lord has continued to provide for our needs through this body. I believe that the Spirit of God is at work in the hearts of individuals here, moving them and prompting them to use their 
financial resources for God's glory by being good stewards of that and contributing some of that joyfully to the work of the ministry here. And that comes because we stand in a long line of what are called free churches. Now, I'm going to keep explaining this in our Sunday morning seminar when we pick that up again, but if you go all the way back in church history to the Reformation, most of the churches that were formed were still state churches. The, the government funded the church. But especially when many of the Puritans came to America and America was founded, uh, it was founded on the principle that these churches weren't going to be funded by the state. They were going to be funded by the individuals who attended those churches. And, and so we've been in that line for several hundred years now, and it's amazing to see how God continues to faithfully provide for these local assemblies through the people. So is giving money part of the giving gift? Absolutely. And some of you have been given that gift because you give spontaneously, generously, joyfully, consistently, proportionally, and for that I'm very thankful. But this word for giving actually has a certain connotation that's missing if your translation says generously, like in their giving generously, because you might think, oh, that means a lot. But the word actually means this in the original. It's kind of an interesting word. Uh, it means without folds, F-O-L-D-S, without folds. So you're like, what does that mean? Well, it means that everything has been opened and smoothed out. Uh, there's no little pockets concealing anything. It's not like somebody says, I'm going to give, but I'm going to, but I'm going to sneak in a little, a little motive here. I'm also going to tuck in a little expectation. I'm going to give, but what you don't know is that concealed within that giving is the idea that in return, you're going to give me something. To give without folds, to give transparently and openly, is to give without anything, any expectation of anything in return. It's to give without conditions. It's to give, as you might say, without any strings attached. And that applies to, in the old saying, your talent, your treasure, and your time. Okay, you give of each of those things without any strings attached. Just give without any expectation of anything in return. In fact, Jesus says that, that when you give to people the way that he gave to people, you give without any expectation that they will be able to give you anything back. And you just do it for the sheer joy of doing it. And sometimes it's hard to give without getting a thank you. But if you can realize that when you give, you're really giving to the Lord and not giving to that individual, then you don't have to get thanked. Now, let me give you sort of an absurd illustration because maybe it will fix it firm in your mind. Sometimes early in the morning, I go out into my backyard and um, there is a disruption on the surface of the pool and I see a bee buzzing around on the surface of the pool. Now, now me, because of my um, virtually bottomless uh, heart of compassion, uh, will go and find a twig, and I will reach in, and I will rescue the bee. Aw, isn't that nice? You didn't know that about me. I'm like, wow, he's so sweet. I will. And I pull him out, or her, I think it's a her. Is it a her? Put it out there on the side. You know, nudge it along. You're okay. You're okay. Little CPR. <laughs> Blowing the wings. And, and, and sure enough, within a few moments, off it flies. 
And you know what I don't think to myself? You never thanked me. I mean, I have zero expectation of thanks. Now, that's, that's ridiculous as an illustration, but may it just serve to, to maybe remind us that there are times where, where giving in a, in a way that is without expecting anything in return can be something of that sort. You, you, just, you do it because you're prompted and motivated by God's Spirit, not by what you're going to get back. When Paul says here that some of you have been given the gift of giving It's that you are able to share resources and time and talent, and you're able to do it for no one's pleasure but God's. And that, in turn, pleases you. Now, the third one is very interesting, and that is leadership. He says here that there are some who have been given the gift of leading. Uh, They are, are literally able to see what needs to be done, and they're able to do it by standing in front of others and guiding them and encouraging them to do the same. The word leadership here, it means to stand in front, uh, to to be up front. It just means that if somebody needs to take the lead on something, you'll do it. You're the one who by nature, when everyone's looking at each other to figure out who's going to make the decision, you're willing to step forward and make the decision. That kind of leadership is a gift from God, used within the body to build up the church. But you're supposed to do it here with zeal, he says. And um, that's because it's one of the things that can actually be incredibly difficult. It is hard to lead sometimes. It is hard to be diligent. If I were to translate this word in a really rough way from the original, it would be to be productively diligent. In fact, leaders sometimes wear out faster than anybody else. Uh, They're the ones at the front. They're the ones that are taking on the, the headwinds of complaints. They're the ones who need to help bring change about. They're the ones who get blamed when things go wrong. Um, They're the ones who are misunderstood, sometimes maligned, and sometimes even attacked. And so Paul says, look, if you've got that leadership gift, if I've identified that in my life, or you've identified that in your life, be prepared to do it with zeal in the midst of sometimes significant difficulty. And know that if you do, it's going to be only by his power and strength that you accomplish it. The final one is mercy. Some of you have been given the gift of mercy, literally acts of mercy. And this is not a mercy that is just open-ended. It's not a mercy that is just sentimental. In, in, In fact, the commentators identify it as being this, a covenant mercy according to the will of God. It's a covenant mercy according to the will of God. What that means is that you are the kind of person who the Spirit of God has put in you a desire to show mercy, but to show a mercy that is discerning. It's not just charity. It's not just meeting a need by carelessly, thoughtlessly throwing money or time at it. He says, you've got got to understand of a covenant mercy that by showing mercy to this person, that you're actually realigning them with God's will and God's purpose. That sometimes you show mercy by not meeting the need they think they have in order to meet the need they really have. And you've got the discernment to know the difference. You're not going to go there to just subsidize a destructive lifestyle, but you're going to come alongside to provide what they need to be rescued from their self-destruction to put their eyes back on Christ. And you do this in a way that is 
cheerful. And I think that um, the translators may have chosen the word cheerful because in the original, the word is actually pronounced hilarites. So you do this with hilarity. Well, that doesn't really make sense, does it? I, I mean, maybe it does. Maybe some people are hilariously merciful. But the two don't really seem to go together. Originally, what it actually meant was that you did this by being won over. That's what the word means, to be won over. You're absolutely convinced that this is the right thing to do. So when you show mercy, you do it not from a heart that wonders if maybe this is helpful or not, but from a heart that is completely won over to the idea of showing mercy. Praise God for people who are designed by him to be that way within the body. They are fully won over to the giving of mercy. I think I mentioned this last week or the week before, the idea that we ought to be a church defined by mercy. Mercy ought to live here. This ought to be a place where mercy is found. Where somebody who's been wandering away from the Lord, who's a Christian, comes back and finds mercy, like Galatians 6.1 says, and they're restored. Where somebody who has never put their faith in Christ before arrives here and sees a place that shows mercy because they've received mercy. A group of people who are able to look past all of the consequences that a person brings in because of their travels in the world and says all of those things are irrelevant compared to the fact that from this day forward you seek to follow Christ. And on the times where they lapse and they fall back into those patterns, there is a genuine desire to receive them back and to restore them. That it's not a place where you feel like if you fail that you've got knocked down a few pegs and you've got to earn your way back up into some position. Rather, it's a place that says when you've repented and you've acknowledged your sin, you're received back with open arms. Now, does it take time to rebuild trust sometimes? Absolutely. Does it mean that all the same responsibilities that might have been given to you before will be given to you again? Probably not. There is some wisdom and waiting to see the fruit of repentance in a person's life. However, the very concept of showing mercy, of being completely won over to the idea that this is God's will, if that permeates our church, it'll make it a place not only worth visiting, but worth joining and worth fighting for. So those are the seven gifts. Prophecy, which is to proclaim the truth of God. Teaching, which is to explain the truth of God. Exhortation, which is to apply the truth of God. Service, which is to serve by taking action. Giving, is to serve by sharing resources. Leading, is to serve by making decisions. And mercy, which is to serve by meeting needs. Now, we say we do this in your body. We do this according to your calling. Thirdly, I want to show you that you do this with Christ as your example. You see, all of this is ultimately fulfilled in him. Not only was he the one who received the gifts from the Magi and received the gifts from those who were afar and worshipped him, but he is also the one who now gives gifts. And he gives gifts to us as the example of the one who has all of those gifts and uses them perfectly. You can study the life of Christ and see that he was faithfully proclaiming the truth of God. Mark 1, 14 and 15 says that he came to preach the gospel. He came to prophesy about himself. He also explained the truth 
One of my favorite stories is that of Jesus in John 4 when he sits with the, the woman at the well and he, he kindly and he patiently explains to her the truth. He is a teacher to her. And he, she, he brings her to an understanding of, of what that means for her personally in her life. And he, he overlooks all of the cultural stigma, overlooks all of the immoral situation that she brought to that encounter. And while he never condones it, and while he acknowledges it as sin, he doesn't let it become a barrier in his ministry to reaching her. And we model him in that regard. He was able to apply the truth of God in his exhortation. When he rebuked Peter in Matthew 16, he did so with absolute clarity and authority, but also with the heart to restore. In terms of his service, he was in every way willing to take action. He was a servant. When there was a need for wine and his mother asked him to perform a miracle, he did so when he turned that water into wine. He was the ultimate giver, sharing of his resources, not only personally, but of everything that his father empowered him to do. He fed crowds of people with just a few loaves and fishes. He was the one who could lead with the full power of the Spirit of God indwelling him, making decisions as he led the disciples, even to the point where he led them up to the place where he was giving himself over into the hands of men who would murder him. And at that moment, he says, who have you come for? And they said, they've come for him. And he says, good, well, then let the rest of these go. Consummate servant leader. And then finally, he was the one who showed mercy. He met every need, even down to the most um, obscure and humbling. It was Jesus himself in John 13 who washed his disciples' feet because there was no one else there willing to serve. He showed that kind of mercy, absolutely convinced that this was right for him to do, and therefore providing us a model and an example to follow. As we move into the new year, I would encourage you to do what Timothy was encouraged by Paul to do in 2 Timothy 1.6, where he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Make the coming year the year where you fan into flame the gift of God. It takes time. I came down early this morning into my living room and there were still some ashes from the fire in there from the night before. And when I put my hand over it, it was warm. And so I blue on those ashes and a few of them turned a little bit red and I took the tongs and I put them together in a little pile convincing myself this is how I would survive in the wilderness if I ever went camping <laughs> proving to myself that I can do this I did this I'm not joking I just thought of this now pull this thing together blue on it blue on it and then eventually this little flame lit up and then I stopped I just wanted to prove the point that I could do it but that's what, what Paul says to Timothy. You've got, you got to fan this into flame. You, you've, got to, you've got to work at it sometimes. It's not necessarily easy, but the work is good. And the consequences are marvelous, not just for you individually, but for this body. Wouldn't it be amazing if every person who was part of this local church knew with absolute certainty at least one of the gifts that God had given them by the power of the Holy Spirit, had cultivated it and built it up so that they were able to use it for his glory, and then with absolute joy and diligence deployed it here for the building up of this community, for glorifying Christ, and for being a light and a witness to a watching world. Wouldn't that be a wonderful goal for the coming year?
You say, yes, how do we do that? Well, over the next several weeks, as we look at the next section in Romans 12, we're going to talk about it. So come back, and we'll begin the process of, step by step, putting together true spiritual goals for how to use our gifts for the glory of our Savior. We celebrate in particular this year at Christmas. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time we've had together just to look at these wonderful verses from Romans 12. We are reminded that you are worthy of worship. You're worthy of these living sacrifices that you have called us to be. And so we bring that to you this morning in the hopes that you will receive it from us and accept it. That it would come from hearts with pure motivation. Also that we submit to you our will. Our will is strong. Our will so easily can drive us to do things that are only in our best interest. And so I ask that you would give us the ability to yield up those wills, to sacrifice them for your will. And then as far as our works are concerned, it's only because you've given us the gifts to do anything. And the way that you humbled Paul, I pray you'd humble us. Oh God, help us not to think more highly of ourselves than we should, not to have some hyper-elevated opinion about ourselves, but that with genuine humility, we would use our gifts without any expectation of anything in return except your good pleasure. For those who have the speaking gifts, whether it is prophecy or teaching, or exhortation. I lift them up before you this morning and pray that you would give them an extra measure of your power to do that for your glory. That they would with great joy preach and with great joy teach and with great joy exhort. No matter what the consequences, in season and out of season, dedicating the best of their time to that practice. Lord, for those with the serving gifts, meeting the needs practically of this body, giving of their time and of their talents and of their finances, leading, even when it's hard, even when leading means stepping into a leadership role that brings with it challenges that would never be there if they had remained on the sidelines. And then for those who show mercy, may they do it diligently and joyfully, cheerfully and with hearts fully convinced that if they show true mercy, biblical mercy, that they will help that person not just with their practical needs, but with the spiritual needs as well and restore them in a way that far exceeds anything they could have imagined. I do ask that you would do this for your church and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.